0: Greetings, one and all, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and together we're working our way through the Christ exalting sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a Victorian pastor and preacher. We're in the third volume of the new Park Street Pulpit series. This week, we're reading sermons 115 to 121. If you'd like to join us, you can find us at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. That's at Reading Spurgeon. Or you can sign up at the Media Gratii website for a weekly newsletter where we not only identify the daily sermons, but also one particular weekly sermon that we hope will be of particular benefit. This week it's Sermon 116 in that third volume. We are working today from Psalm 19 and verse 12. Cleanse me from secret faults. It's a sermon that was preached by Spurgeon at the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall on the 8th of February 1857. Now Spurgeon is a true gospel preacher. He has no intention of healing the sins of people lightly. And he understands then that the gospel, the good news of salvation, must be offered to those who understand themselves to be in need of good news. The good news makes sense in the context of the bad news. And so Spurgeon begins by emphasizing that self-righteousness arises partly from pride, yes, but mainly from ignorance of God's law. It is because men know little or nothing concerning the terrible character of the divine law that they foolishly imagine themselves to be righteous. They're not aware of the deep spirituality and the stern severity of the law or they would have other and wiser notions of themselves than that things are good with them. Only let the law be revealed to a man, says our preacher, let him know how strict the law is and how infinitely just and his self-righteousness will shrivel into nothing. It's when we understand the holiness of God as revealed in his law that we come to the end of ourselves and know and feel our need of Jesus Christ. So Spurgeon says that Psalm 19 is a a hymn of praise to God for his holy law. But when David thinks about the implications of that for himself, he asks who can understand his errors and then pleads, cleanse thou me from secret faults. Now, Spurgeon's main point in this sermon is to go after a certain class of men who have sins not unknown to themselves, but secret to their fellow creatures. In other words, out of the great congregation, and in the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall there would have been many thousands, he's concerned that there would be real hypocrites. Now, you don't just find hypocrites in a great crowd, but uh, perhaps there's some pressing sense upon him that uh, there's a lot of people who are coming along because religion's a little fashionable, because it's a good thing to go and hear this, uh, this preacher from the fens of Cambridgeshire, and he wants to make sure that he is going to press into their consciences the reality of sins in order that the gospel that he preaches might be precious to them and Christ glorious in their eyes. Now this is This is a distinct kind of sermon. The intention of the preacher under God is to aim for conviction of sin. And it's frankly the kind of sermon that a lot of people now, as in Spurgeon's day, resent and reject. People might say, well, I already know how bad I am. I don't need this kind of stuff. And yet Spurgeon knows as a true preacher of the gospel and preachers today need to understand that we need to be as honest, as clear, as pressing as Spurgeon was with regard to the holiness of God and the terrible character of his law. It's deep spirituality and stern severity if we are under God to uncover the secrets of men's hearts and so that they might flee to Jesus Christ now there are really five main points in this sermon he identifies four of them in the introduction but also points out that he's going to go on to to make application which is really the fifth section of this sermon and each of these sections, and when he gets up to, to sort of five divisions as he does here, he doesn't tend to break down the points quite as much as he often does. So here you've got the folly, the misery, the guilt, the danger of secret sins, and then some applications with regard to the remedy for them and the avoidance of them. So uh, you can see how he's really digging down as he goes through this sermon. So the folly of secret sins is that you might imagine that you look impressive, but God is looking on the heart. However secret you think your sin may be, it is known because the eye of God has seen it and you have sinned before his face. Now, We sometimes hear preachers today talk about how uh, sin has gone, in some measure, underground. And as Spurgeon will point out later, that's not entirely the case. But what those preachers might mean is that there are many sins today that we are enabled to commit because we live lives that are so much cut off from other people. The internet has become a real gateway to wickedness for so many because it feels private. And I'm not just talking about indulgence in uh, pornographic material, although that's clearly one of the horrors of the internet age. I'm talking about the fact that when we're interacting with people from behind a screen, it seems to take the brakes off some of our lives. And people say things. And do things that they would never perhaps do, uh, at least initially, if they were in what they feel to be the, the real presence of other people. And long before that kind of pressure and temptation came, what fools men are, says Spurgeon, to think that they can do anything in secret. One of the horrors of the internet age is people who've committed some kind of godlessness or or wickedness or indulgence on screen who find that it has been recorded someone saw me Spurgeon's point is someone always sees you and not another sinner like yourself but God on high here's a telling a uh, reminder of what that means. Spurgeon asks if I should select out of this congregation the most holy man, should bring him forward and say, "Now sir, I know all your thoughts and I'm about to tell them. I am sure he would offer me the largest bribe that he could gather if I would be pleased to conceal at least some of them." Now, here's Spurgeon then, not just giving this theoretical sense, but bringing it home practically. It's a good example to the preacher of bringing the truth to bear upon the conscience. He he wants everybody in front of him to think, what if my life were written large? What if everybody could see what's going on in my soul? It's the folly of secret sins to imagine that they are in fact truly secret because God knows them but these secret sins, these uh, hidden sins, are, are not just foolish, they're also miserable. Spurgeon says, of all sinners, the man who makes a profession of religion and yet lives in iniquity is the most miserable. He's a liar to himself, and he's constantly aware that he could be caught out. And it's fearful for the church when what Spurgeon calls this most damnable hypocrisy exists in the congregation Spurgeon often basically says to people if you follow God follow God entirely but if you're going to be a sinner then be a real sinner stop pretending to follow God and there's there's both a desire for just integrity in the humanity there but also a concern that the damage that hypocrisy does and not just to the church, but to the soul. A mere profession, my hearers, is but painted pageantry to go to hell in. It's like the plumes upon the hearse and the trappings upon the black horses which drag men to their graves, the funeral array of dead souls. Hypocrisy is is a waxen profession that will not stand the sun. Be one thing or be the other. Either serve Satan or God, but you cannot serve two masters. It will trouble you. It will torment you. You will never be able to rest. Hypocrisy is a hard game to play at, for it is one deceiver against many observers, and for certain it's a miserable trade which will earn at last as its certain climax a tremendous bankruptcy. It's a horrible thing, says Spurgeon, to to live in the fear that your sin will find you out, to be having constantly to play the game, to to remember the right lie to tell so that you can maintain the particular fiction that you've tried to follow. The the man who who cheats and steals at work, the the adulterer or the adulteress, the the drunkard, the the indulger in some uh, hidden wickedness, all of these things require lie upon lie and and they leave you with the, the foretaste of damnation upon earth. It's a miserable thing to pretend to be one thing but to be a wicked sinner in truth. And that then brings the solemn guilt of secret sin to bear. Spurgeon says the common measure of sin is the notoriety of it. Uh, that most people think of something being particularly bad because it's known and well known. But that's not true, he says. A sin is a sin, whether it's done in private or before the whole wide world. So do not measure sin by what other people say of it, but measure sin by what God says of it and what your own conscience says of it. Spurgeon makes an interesting point. Secret sin, if anything, is the worst because it implies that the man who commits it has atheism in his heart. What he means is that you you actually believe that God isn't seeing or you'd like to believe that God isn't seeing. You're more bothered about what men think than what God Knows. You're happy to be applauded by those who see the outside. You have no real regard for the God who knows what's taking place in your inner being. But you cannot sin a little in secret it engenders more sin. You cannot be a hypocrite and yet be moderate in guilt. You'll go from bad to worse and still proceed until when your guilt is published, you shall be found to be the very worst and the most hardened of men. So there's this horrible reality that that bubbles up in your soul and and it presses in upon you and what you're basically doing over and over again is denying that God is there and present and seeing what is taking place in your soul and that makes you harder and harder because you're basically living in the consistent or persistent denial of the reality of God and that brings a fearful guilt upon it and so there's a danger in secret sin that you cannot commit a little sin in secret without being by and by betrayed into a public sin and here again is that sense of of a hardening and a, a progress in ungodliness so many people think that they can preserve moderation in sin but it builds and it builds and it builds sin has a a horrible habit of breaking out into the open for some people it's it feels like a mistake they were caught in a trap they were they were caught in their lies they they were accidentally uncovered but for some people that that lack of integrity it tears them up inside and they seem sometimes to take greater and greater risks it's as if they're desperate to be uncovered because they cannot live with the ugly tension of uh, trying to be to appear one thing while really being something else and so Spurgeon says take heed of the little sins because they mount one upon the other and may at last heave you from the summit and destroy your soul forever so people imagine that uh, they can keep things under wraps they can keep things at home they can keep control of their transgressions no says Spurgeon your sins will find you out and he speaks particularly to some true Christians who indulge in secret sins, who say this is just a little one, and therefore they spare it. No, says Spurgeon, the smallest sin is sin indeed, and a little sin like a little pebble in the shoe will make a traveller to heaven walk very wearily. The little sins, like little thieves, may open the door to greater ones outside. If you know you're Oliver Twist, you'll know that uh, some of the thieving gangs of Victorian London uh, often uh, got small boys in particular, the kind of lads who could uh, climb up the chimneys for uh, the chimney sweeps. And they liked those little boys because they could put them through little windows and their job was then to open the big doors for the men who were waiting outside. And Spurgeon says your small sin can be just like that it will let in other iniquity. You must not tolerate a secret sin. You cannot harbour traitors to God in your heart. It is high treason against the king of heaven. So he's pleading here and, and, and he's, he's doing it very wisely and very carefully. He's not going into too much detail About the kinds of sins but he's conscious that he's speaking to the conscience and he knows that unbelievers and believers alike are in the habit of hiding these sins in their hearts and so he says if you're trying to pretend you're a christian but you're not then you need to face that reality. And if you really are a Christian, but you're indulging some sin in secret, then you too need to deal with that in righteousness. And so he comes now to his conclusion and application. And this is now almost as long as the other elements of the sermon. It's not one last thrust, as it were, but he's going to pick up the whole sermon and and press it into the conscience. And that's what he's aiming at. I am going to plead with all my might with some of you whom God has pricked in your consciences. So the whole of the sermon up to this point has been a deliberate assault upon the conscience. He wants people to come face to face with God as he makes himself known in all his holiness in the law. He wants to peel back the layers. He wants to make people look in the mirror of God's word and see their own reflection. And he wants them to understand that those sins which they have been hiding are not hidden and will bring awful grief and misery and ultimately judgment upon them and incur a fearful guilt and will at some point either make their life yet worse and worse uh, in in the eyes of God or even break out in such a way that what they thought would remain hidden might uh, has become open. And so he's pleading now. The pleasures of this life are intoxicating. The joys of it so ensnaring that if I didn't believe that God works in us to will and to do, I should despair of you. He knows the power of secret sins. And he wants men to make their choice deliberately. Back on this point don't be half-hearted, don't halt between two opinions, don't say you'll take up with religion without first counting the cost of it, remember there is your lust to be given up, your pleasure, your sinful pleasure to be renounced, can you do it for Christ's sake, can you? I know you cannot unless God's grace shall assist you in making such a choice, it's almost fascinating uh, and could be if you were just watching on dispassionately but spurgeon is invested in this so it's it's both fascinating and deeply engaging he's more or less walking through what's taking place in the hearts of some of his hearers they they they're resisting but they're desiring. There's, there's a spiritual battle taking place and Spurgeon's got into the trenches and he's standing alongside people and he's asking them, are you ready to turn? And he's telling them you need the help of God. And now he starts thinking <clears throat> about some of the excuses that people make. Well, I intend to be religious, but I don't hold with your strictness. He says, who cares about mine? What about God's? God's strictness is 10,000 times greater than mine. He's taking himself out of the equation. He's making sure that they're brought face to face with the reality of God himself. You may say that I am puritanical in my preaching. God will be puritanical in judging in that great day. I may appear severe, but I can never be so severe as God will be. Here again is something very unlike so much modern preaching where so often today you'll hear a preacher essentially back off and say, oh, I don't mean this, and I don't mean this, and I don't mean this. Spurgeon goes for the jugular in a spiritual sense. He says, you think I'm hard. You have no idea of the justice of a holy God. God in Spurgeon's eyes is not only merciful, but he is most righteous, most upright, most just. and and the whole holds together. I may draw the sharp teeth of the harrow across your conscience, he says, but God shall drag harrows of eternal fire across you one day. You may laugh at hell, you must reject your Bible before you can believe the lie. You need to understand though, says Spurgeon, this is real. He he could hardly be more intense if he got out of the pulpit and gripped a man by his lapels. Sir, he asks, will you keep your secret sins and have eternal fire for them? Remember it is of no use. They must all be given up or else you cannot be God's child. There's no no man's land in Spurgeon's spiritual anatomy. There's no halting between the two opinions. There's no uh, space between. You are either gods or you are the devils. You cannot have God and the world. You cannot have Christ and Satan. You must give up your sins, even your secret sins. And someone now says, oh, but that'd be like pulling my eyes out. Yes, says Spurgeon, but better to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. It's like cutting my arm off. He understands the the preciousness of sin to the sinful heart. And again, he he, he hears the cry. This is too strict. This is too precise. This is too much. This is too demanding. Will you say that to God? He asks. You would not dare to tell God on the day of judgment he's too strict, he's too precise, and he's not being fair by letting you have your sin. No, says Spurgeon, now is the time to turn your back upon your sin and flee to Christ, lest you come to the point where you flee to the hills and to the rocks and look for something there to cover you. Spurgeon is bringing people to the day of judgment. And he's pressing them to understand that the decision that they make today is going to make a difference then. Oh, secret sinner, he asks, what will then become of thee? And he may be unconsciously quoting there from a hymn about the day of judgment, the day of wonders, hark, the trumpet's awful sound, louder than a thousand thunders shakes the the vast creation round. And he asks then, you sinner, what will then become of thee? Go out of this place unmasked. Here's the point. Stop pretending. Go out to examine yourself. Go out to bend your knee. Go out to weep. Go out to pray. God give you grace to believe. Take it home, he says. Mock me if you will. But this morning I am clear of your blood. If any seek not God but live in sin, I shall be clear of your blood in that day when the watchman shall have your souls demanded of him. O oh, may God grant that you may be cleared in a blessed manner. If you are damned, he says, it will not be it will be not for want of preaching to you and it shall not be for want of praying for you. God knows that if my heart could break of itself, it would for your souls. For God is my witness. How earnestly I long for you in the bowels of Christ Jesus. That's old fashioned language from the very heart from the deepest affections of Christ Jesus. And you see now And this is so important to understand that Spurgeon's preaching in this way is not harsh, heartless, cold and distant. He is telling these people how deeply concerned he is. He is not railing against them but pleading with them. He wants them to turn from their sins and be saved. Now how many preachers today go into the pulpit Sunday after Sunday, morning and evening, with that sense of eternity in their souls. Under God, I I really do believe, I am persuaded that we need, as Jonathan Edwards prayed, to have eternity stamped upon our eyeballs, to be conscious of heaven and hell in all our preaching. And it might not mean that we always preach a sermon like this, it might not mean that uh, we should always desire to hear only such sermons but Spurgeon's sense and what should be our sense of the holiness of God in all his sovereign majesty should lead us to preach the law in all its stern severity to peel back the hearts of men Spurgeon's not trying to do the Holy Spirit's work for him but he has a duty as a preacher to aim at the heart to aim at the conscience and he does that with every gift that God has given him and with the genuine desire and intent that when men come face to face with their sin he will strip away every excuse he will address every diversion that he can and he will call them as one who must answer for his preaching just as much as they must answer for their hearing to to deal with God in the light of their sins through Jesus Christ. This is the kind of intensity, the kind of awareness that I think we need so much more of today. May God help us to pray to this end for ourselves and for preachers that he would be pleased to give this holy sense of the holy law, this deep and distressing awareness of, of sins of all kind, not least those secret sins, so that we may ultimately pray with David, cleanse me from secret faults. May God help us to understand his truth and to live and, if we're called, to preach in the light of these things. Thank you for listening. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information, and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.